0: Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartsman.
1: All right, I'm Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, March 1st, 2022, and I'm on as always with my partner Dominic Tavella.
2: How are you Dominic this evening? Uh doing well, Mike, doing well. Uh all things being equal, uh, we're here another day in paradise and uh looking forward to tonight's show. We have a lot of stuff to talk about.
1: We 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 do. And and you know, Dom, we talked about the show's over a year old already and and for the first Half of the year last year, we talked a lot about the pandemic, but we started coming out of it and it was really everyone's focus. But I, I have to tell you something, this war in Ukraine and the video coming out, it, it just creates a cloud over, over everything that I haven't really felt in a very long time, um, including the market.
2: You know, what, Mike, That the word pandemic might be the first time I've heard it today where you couldn't get off the phone with a client or have a discussion with anybody in our industry without it being part of the calculation. Mm-hmm. How quickly was it going to be over? Where were the numbers today? When was the economy going to open up? Nobody cares, right? It's all about the videos that we're all watching, uh, the news, the headlines. And we had a little positive news last uh, week, uh, Thursday and Friday. It looked like uh, perhaps there'd be some negotiations. The market reacted accordingly. And then, of course, uh, the last two days have been really, really rough.
1: And that's the other part of it, Don. You almost feel guilty worrying about the market. We have a job to do. We have to protect clients' assets. Um, but real lives are being lost and, and, and destroyed and, and, you know, and, and, and you feel like, what well, well, what we do is important, but it's not as important as that. But it, like I said, at the same token, we have this job to do to protect clients assets amongst all this.
2: Um, look at the end of the day, that's what clients have us for. And we're supposed to be uh, i dare say the word clinical, but look at these things and not let the noise uh, get in the way of our decisions. On the other hand, um, all that noise has real direct impact in how people spend their money, when they travel, where they go. Certainly, the price of energy affects everything from uh, gasoline in our cars to jet fuel to transportation. I think of a UPS or a, or a FedEx. So all of this stuff has significant economic impact, and you wonder why the markets are this volatile. There you go. It's, it's the economic impact of even people slowing down their purchasing or changing their habits. Um, that have, can have significant uh, economic impact.
1: And the irony of it is that people are ready now to truly get back to normal without fear, without trepidation. Um, you know, in, in the state of New York, they've lifted most of the mask rules. Um, As they have in most of the country now. Right. Right. In New York City, if you're not vaccinated, you could go to a restaurant. I mean, things were really beginning to to feel like they were getting back to normal. And and, and now this hang is hanging over our heads. And, you know, this too shall pass. But in the meantime, um, it's, a, it's a still a lot of unknown that we're dealing with at the moment.
2: And, you know, Mike, people, uh, and I I get this question all the time. I'm sure you do as well. You know, how does this affect me? You know, uh, it's going on in Europe. It's going on in Ukraine. And it's horrible to look at. But how does it affect me? And so the question uh, I I rhetorically give back to the client is, well, have, have you changed your behavior? Like, well, yeah, I don't want to spend any money. I'm afraid. Well, the minute you stop spending money, somebody else doesn't have a job. Right. I mean, a contractor doesn't come in or you don't buy the new car or you don't get on an airplane or you the economy, I won't say it comes to a stop, but it certainly slows down. And that's the economic impact that emotionally we change our spending pattern. And then in the end, that change economic output. Right.
1: And 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 that's the that's the, the, the worst thing to do is, is to stop living. And again, we've talked a lot about this on this show. People were mad, we talked about it last week, about having their life put on hold for two years and and they wanna start to live again. Um, Dom, tonight's guest is Greg Dahlman. He's a senior vice president and one of the partners at Dana Investments, one of our partners, um, one of the money managers that we work with. And um, you and I get inundated daily with commentary from really, really smart people. And Greg and his team are certainly among them so we're we're excited and looking forward to getting his point of view on all things Ukraine, interest rates, the market, and so forth.
2: Yeah, and I, I'm going to let him speak for himself, but hopefully, uh, the voice of reason right? We, we have gone through incidences like this in the past, uh, both the Iraq wars, the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, when Russia invaded Crimea. So we have historical data on how markets behave, how economies behave. And hopefully, Greg gives us a little bit of calming voice of reason uh, of what we can expect, what We can expect in terms of a timeline here and recovery, hopefully. Uh, Not that anybody's got a crystal ball, but I think he can bring some common sense and logic to this discussion.
1: We're counting on it. And we will be right back with Greg Dahlman from Dana Investments.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X, le tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Laventhal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Laventhal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800 441 7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC.
3: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: you are listening to the Labenthal report if you're listening to the show live join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790 again that's 1-866-472-5790 you may also send an email to contact at Labenthal.com. now back to the Labenthal report
1: all right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with my partner, Dominic Tavella, and our special guest this evening, Greg Dahlman, Senior Vice President and partner at one of our money manager partners, Dana Investments. How are you, Greg?
3: I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Welcome on guard, Greg. Uh, looking forward to
2: this discussion tonight.
1: Thanks for being here. So, you know, Dom and I mentioned it uh, on, on the open and, and last week in talking to clients I asked them a similar question. Dominic mentioned either Home Depot and you mentioned Target before the show. Comments that I would make to my clients is, well, what's happening in Ukraine is tragic and we pray for the people in Ukraine, but you're still going to not be able to get a table at an Italian restaurant on Long Island this weekend, right? I mean, people are still going out. They're still living their lives. and And that means the economy is still functioning. So, Greg, when you and your team... Look at this from, from from the investment point of view. How much do you factor in the upheaval? And I don't want to minimize it by calling it headline risk, but but you can't take your ball off the long the long run. Correct?
3: Correct. And I guess that answers the question, guys. I don't want to minimize the suffering that's going on over there, but you know, Ukraine, Russia's the Russia's economy is the size of Spain. Okay, and so and when you look at the S and P's revenues and earnings. Um, Less than one percent of the S&P is tied to Russia, Um, so I think sometimes we have a tendency to react a little more emotionally than what really impacts good old-fashioned earnings and revenues. I think when you take a look at it, the the thing I look at is the you know there's a wall of worry going on right now with interest rates and the Fed and. How does this global geopolitics impact impact earnings in Europe? And just the wall of worry just continues to grow, as you well know. But the thing I look at that makes me very positive looking out is if you put yourself on a businessman's standpoint, um, what problem would you rather have? Would you rather have a demand problem or a supply problem? And right now, if you take a look at like autos, for example, we know that, you know, right now, if you try to, I have a friend that just tried to order a Cadillac Escalade and GM said, uh, we'd love to build you one, but it might take 18 months to get it. Uh, Brunswick, the boat company, is backed up. Uh, another company we follow called Polaris that makes ATVs. Um, has the, They'll sell every vehicle they make for the next two years. So right now, I think corporate America, what's very positive is, you know, COVID created a bunch of supply chain issues and has made it difficult for companies to actually produce at the level of demand. But the underlying demand is very, very strong. And as we talked about before, a company that a lot of people are familiar with that kind of puts the rubber to the road is target and everybody's familiar with what target does and if you take a look at it targets comps during covid because they're one of the first big box open uh retailers to be open their comps are up 20.9 percent so yeah that's on a year-over-year basis so wall street thought "Ah, it's gonna be really hard for them to beat that now given that those numbers were already so high well guess what they reported this morning and their comps are up another 8.9%. So what I think that really shows is the consumer's flush with cash right now, and they're willing to spend. And I think there's some logic to say that we've all spent a lot of our money on goods. Some people think that we're gonna start to spend more money on services too, which I think is good, because they'll help us see a broadening out of the economy from what we've seen before.
2: So, Greg, uh, I mean, I know uh, Target's numbers were great. We talked in the past about Home Depot and Lowe's, and Nordstrom's numbers were fantastic as well. So that means the consumer right now is certainly spending, and that makes sense. They've been cooped up for two years. But what point do the headlines and the fear and higher gas prices, at what point does the crossover where the consumer says, yeah, maybe I'm not? Maybe I'll put off that expenditure. Maybe I won't renovate the house. Maybe I won't buy that new car. I'll wait a little while. When does that crossover happen and do you worry about it? Well, I think it's a really good question. I think one of the key
3: things, and I think it's why you've got so much consternation about the Fed and where do they take interest rates. Um, you know, I mean, take a look at housing, for example. I mean, Dom, you're in Florida. The housing market down there is as hot as anything I've ever seen. Um, demand is off the charts. Why? There's a dearth of supply, and a lot of people want to be down, want to be down there. Um, it's, it's like that all over the place. I think COVID has changed the way some of us can live. A lot of us have realized, hey, we don't need to be in an office building. We can be somewhere else. So you've seen kind of a little bit of flight from people being wanting more space, and it's really had a big impact on the housing market. Housing is a big-ticket durable, though, and uh, although a lot of people, a lot of older people, can afford to pay cash for real estate, the you know your first-time home buyers and what have you are still taking out mortgages. So the big question is, in our mind, is how high can interest rates go before you start to chalk off demand, before you start to impact affordability in housing, especially for the first-time home buyer. And I think we've seen asset prices go up so high, especially on the coasts. Uh, I've got. My, I've got one son that lives in LA, another li- that lives in New York. Um, they both make six figures and can't afford to buy a house right now. So, you know, you guys in your part of the world, you understand it as well. Um, I, I, I think at this level, it's not an issue yet, but it's something that we definitely have to watch. But the good news is, is home prices, home demand so far, the latest numbers that came out in January, still very, very strong. I mean, this, this economy is, I think, on much more of a solid um, foundation than I think a lot of people realize and and
1: speaking of interest rates greg the predictions of how high and how many interest rate hikes we're going to have has been all over the place and and now of course with with this war in ukraine the treasury is 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 going the yields are going down um prices are going up so does the fed get some cover now does the fed have to raise interest rates 50 basis points in march um, they're going to do something. I think that's a foregone conclusion. But does the turmoil now in, in, in Eastern Europe give us some cover here with the Fed in America?
3: You know, that's the $64,000 question. And I can tell you, our book of business, about 50% of what I do is talking to very sophisticated pension plans every single day. Um, the question on most of those people's minds is, look, inflation is running hot. Um, you know, when you look backwards, there's a lot of arguments of should the Fed have moved quicker? Um, It it was a looking in hindsight, I think you look, you know, I would say the one thing government officials learned very well from 09 is they learned what works to keep to prevent a recession. And as you all know, we've seen an unprecedented amount of money uh, flow in from both the Fed stimulus and government stimulus. It's unprecedented. And it really put a safety net under a lot of people's spending power, it's a very good thing. The problem is with when you've got all these supply kinks because of COVID, uh, we now have an issue where demand is much, much higher than supply. I think it's reasonable to think that some of that supply is going to get fixed as we start to fix these uh, supply chain kinks and logistics and transportation. Everybody's heard about how many boats are off the, off the LA coast and what have you. But there's a few things that we're watching that are. I don't think the Fed can easily, it's almost like pushing on a string. Um, talk to a lot of business people. I'm sure a lot of the folks on, on this call that own a business, um, it's very difficult to hire labor right now. And that's changing interest rates isn't something that you can easily solve by that. Um, energy, for example, and now you could argue that maybe OPEC is artificially holding down the supply, but the supply demand for oil is about as tight as it's been in a long, long time. Interest rates don't change that either. So I think when you look at it, as y'all know, the inflation, the the government statistics are running in the sevens. Uh, We haven't seen that in a long, long time. And, you know, the, the fed has a dual mandate to try to have full employment and keep inflation and, and, uh, keep inflation down. You know, they've had a well-stated goal for quite a, for quite some time that they wanted inflation to go up. But I think there's a question of, I think a lot of people I talk to at least is when you look at the price of gas, I just talked to somebody in LA this this morning, gas is five seventy-five dollars a gallon in LA. They're not real happy about that. Um, food prices are going up. We all, you know, I just read the average price of housing is up 18% year over year. So there's a big question mark and nobody knows the answer to it is, How high will the Fed need to raise to get inflation to a more moderate level? And I think that's one of the $64,000 questions of of, uh, what plays out in the economy in the next 18
2: months. Uh, But, Craig, and and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. The issue is not where interest rates are, in my opinion. And interest rates could go up by 100 basis points. It's not going to bring down the price of gasoline. It's not going to bring down the price of housing, a third of all new home purchases are 100% cash. They're not even using financing on that. So you have the Fed on one side that that is going to try to slow this economy down, but short of stopping it, which puts us into a recession, how much real leverage does the Federal Reserve have
3: here? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, if you take a look at history, inflation, moderate levels of inflation are actually good for S&P-like companies. Uh, History shows, though, that when you have... You know, think back to the 70s. I think some of the folks on this call probably remember my first mortgage was 10 and 7 7.8. So I remember those days. Um, the question mark will be, how, what do they have to do to get inflation down to more moderate levels? If you look at history of the S&P, like I said, moderate levels of inflation, less than 4% are actually good for, for stocks. Uh, but history shows that if it stays elevated for too long, historically, that's not great. Um so that's that like I said that's one of the big questions. I'll tell you though truthfully, we're still very bullish on the outlook for the market though and I'll tell you why. I mean, if you talk to any businessman, I mean I talk to multiple ones every single day. Um they're seeing cost pressures go at across all sorts of different lines. Labor's going up, healthcare expenses are going up, transportation and logistics are going up, materials are going up. Just there's a host of, of rising cost pressures. But believe it or not, if I showed you a chart of the margins for the S&P 500, they're at record levels. So, And the question is, why is that? Well, so far, corporate America has pricing power. And so far, we as consumers are willing to pay those higher prices. So as long as we continue to see that, I think that's a very, very positive outlook for both revenues and earnings for the S&P. And I think everyone on this call probably agrees that, you know, over the long term, Stocks follow earnings and revenues, so if that if that trajectory keeps going up the way it is, um, we'll get through some of the consternation that we're going through right now with the geopolitical issue.
1: Greg, I just want to put a bow on the on the on the conversation about interest rates and oil and inflation, because one of the things that always frustrates me is as the price of oil goes up, that's a drag on the economy just by itself, right? So, no, so is the Fed able to measure that and say, it's look, it's unfortunate that the price of oil has gone up 75 cents a gallon for the average American, but therefore that's going to slow down the economy X. So it gives us a little wiggle room as to how far and how fast we have to raise interest rates.
3: Right. I think yeah, there's definitely an argument to be made there. Um, you know, I've, I, I Shouldn't I can't name specific companies unless I get their permission. But there's a couple of big name Wall Street companies that have come out and said, "Look, if oil stays at above a hundred a hundred dollars a barrel like it's at right now, I think it's close to like 105 today. Um, that's probably going to be anywhere from a half a point to a full percent drag on GDP. So there's no question that there's a long-term correlation between energy costs and inflation. I think the bigger issue, though, in terms of the Fed is. You know, it was only a matter of a couple of weeks ago that um, Bullard, which was one of the uh, Fed governors, came out and said, you know, within the next four four raises, I want to see a full point in short-term interest rates. Um, so the the Wall Street suddenly went from having we're never going to do 50 basis points starting out to it was almost I think the probability got up to above 80 percent just a couple of weeks ago. Now we're back down below that, and I think and I think that's rational because while our economy has less exposure to to Russia. Um, our economy is is dependent on Europe. We do a lot of trade with Europe. And I think it's reasonable to think that if you put yourself in Europe right now, um, what's happening over there and what's going on? And I think the one thing we know with certain is um, the Europeans are suddenly starting to get real about defense spending. I think one of the things I found most interesting this week is Germany committed to an extra $120 billion in defense spending. That's new information that we haven't heard before. So... You know, and you can see how that's going to ripple through and have, have an effect on a lot of different industries.
2: And, and the effect of energy, right? I mean, we're, if we want to cry about four and five dollars a gallon here. It's double that number in Europe on the. Episode. Absolutely. Uh, and so the energy impact on them is substantially greater than it is here. So do you guys have an opinion in U.S.-based investing versus global. Are you more still centric on the U.S.? Are you more positive on the U.S.?
3: Well, to tell you, Tom, I've, I've always been more of a fan of the U.S. And it's because, I mean, I think most people have heard of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And the G part has always been, I, mean, I got my CFA in 1992. Okay? And the G part, I would rather have a company, uh, have exposure to a company with U.S.-based gap that has a watchdog looking over them, that has governance, that has a rule of law, has all the different protections that we as American investors uh, benefit from, that you don't necessarily have those protections overseas. Um, For anybody that's invested in Chinese internet stocks for a while, for example, Alibaba and Tencent and some of those others. I mean, there were moonshots a couple of years ago, but as you've seen, there's been a lot of regulation coming on, a lot of hard, um, very hard-handed tactics by the Chinese government, and some of those stocks are down 80%, 90%. So I've always been a fan of if you can get the rule of law and the, the governance that you get with a U.S. company. And as you know, you know, over, almost 50% of S&P revenues are overseas. So I've always told investors that, To me, you can play the overseas game, especially with a lot of the high quality FANG stocks being, you know, take a look at how much overseas business, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and what have you do. We get to benefit from what's going on overseas, but we also get U.S. governance, which I'll take all day long.
1: We, I think we agree on, on that. And I think, um, Dom, correct me if I'm wrong. I think we've lightened up our international exposure just recently. So we're in your camp.
2: Uh, You're absolutely right, Mike. We took a (laughs) significant portion of our international, uh, fortunately before when the Olympic Games started, uh, we were concerned about what would happen after the Games, given the relationship that Putin has with President Xi and and I think uh, fortuitously, Mike, we took a significant portion of our international off the table and uh, and we've seen what happened since. Mm-hmm. So we may be lucky, but uh, yeah, we, we really, really lowered our exposure. there. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you guys something that, I, that a
3: conversation I have with a lot of my pension clients almost every single week is, you know, in this discussion of international versus the U.S., if you take a look at the the P.E., which is what a lot of financial professionals look at. Uh, there's no question that the PE of the MSCI All World, it's currently just less than 14 times, whereas the S&P is 19 times. So there's an argument amongst a lot of investors that, gee, foreign investor, foreign stocks are cheaper, so maybe I should go that direction. Um, the only thing I caution on that is it's very important to take a look under the hood and see what you get. And the truth of it is take a look at what's been some of the key drivers of the S&P 500 in the U.S. stock market. It's the enormous um, innovation that we've had in this economy. And just take a look at what Microsoft and Apple and Amazon and Google and these companies have been able to achieve. Um, If you take a look at the percent of tech, tech is in the S&P, for example. Last time I checked, it was over 28% of the S&P. Tech in the European indexes is less than 14 times. So for those that look at the at foreign indices and say, "Gee, maybe these are cheaper," well, there's a lot. European indices are a lot more cyclical than the U.S. The U.S. has a lot of great growth companies that have enormous moats around them that have fantastic long-term outlooks. So to me, even though the U.S. is a little more a little more expensive, when you look at it on, a, on a price per growth basis, I think so the U.S. still looks very very good.
1: Greg, we're bumping up against our first break. And just for the benefit of our listeners, P.E. means the price-earnings ratio, which is the the multiple of a price of a stock versus the earnings uh, that they earn, correct? You bet. Yeah, at least I remembered something from uh, (laughs) Economics 101. Our
2: our courses and classes, right, Mike?
1: Exactly. So we'll be right back after this break with Greg Dahlman. We have a lot more to ask him.
0: Follow us on Twitter at Voice TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. When you're thinking about where to
1: park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed, so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes?
2: Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing, but I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom, but the beauty of the funds is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. Mm-mm. Less taxes. More income. Less Taxes. More
4: income. For your cash, ask your advisor about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Or find out more at dcmadvisors.com.
1: Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep.
4: Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-T-A-X the Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC.
0: You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report.
1: All right, I'm Michael Hartzman back with Dominique Tavella and Greg Dahlman from from Dana Investments. He's a senior vice president and partner there. So, Greg, let me ask you this. I know you guys are on market timers, and I'm not trying to pin you down or make you a market timer. But we're hearing a lot that the Nasdaq is going to go down 20, and and, and that should kind of start to create a bottom. We're very close to that right now. I think we're at 17 or 18. The S&P is going to break 10, which it did. So... I know you guys are bullish, but what, But how much pain, how much more pain do you think we have to inflict before we start to rebuild?
3: Michael, I'll answer that question. I'm a numbers guy. You know, to answer that, you know, there's some, when I look at, you know, this has been an unusual year when we started out because most of the New York warehouses, they're, They have a bias to be, they have a natural bias to be bullish. We all know that. I mean, nobody likes a bear, okay? So we started this year with kind of interesting, though, because I think two of the big bulge bracket firms being B of A and Morgan Stanley actually were predicting a negative year for the S&P at the start of the year. Um, there are also some very bullish ones, too, that had projections for the S&P north of 5,000. We traded, you know, the S&P closed right around 4,300 today, just so, to give you a, a reference point. But, you know, well, to answer your question of where do we think we could go, uh, the big question is, you know, Warren Buffett once said the market's a voting machine in the in the short term, but a weighing machine in the long term. And, uh, and I think what we mean, what he meant by that is, you know, in, in the long run, good old-fashioned sales, earnings, and cash flow are what drive stock prices. If companies are making more money, the market may not recognize them immediately, but eventually they come around and say, hey, there's value here, and the stock prices go up accordingly. So if we take a look at the S&P, the big question is, like I said, corporate earnings, the Q1 earnings season so far has been fantastic. I mean, 78% of companies are beating street expectations. The thing that I'm most surprised at is corporate margins at an all time high. And with all of the cost pressures that are going on out there, that's really extraordinary. And when you think about it, why is that I said it before, but I can't say it enough is so far corporate America has pricing power, which is a very, very good thing. So the question is the S and P is going to earn between two, say around 230 bucks a share. Okay. So the big, the big question mark would come is saying, well, with interest rates where they are, with all of these geopolitical issues, what do you think the S and P is worth? And when we take a look, usually by this summer, wall street starts to look forward i mean wall street it's we everybody on the street calls it forward earnings but it's not more wall street's not uh what have you done for me lately it's what are you gonna do for me so when we take a look at those estimates for next year they're starting to rise towards the 240 250 range so if you apply a reasonable multiple at uh at those numbers given the fact that we know that interest rates probably are going to go up a little bit um, I think you, I think what we have to temper ourselves is there's upside, but we're probably gotten spoiled with these double digit returns in the 20% range that we've seen over the last couple of years. I think most of us have probably got to temper our, our, our return expectations going forward to the more reasonable, you know, high double digits, very low double digit total return when you count into dividends. I wonder if I'm being a little too squishy for you there, but hopefully that answers your question.
1: You're good. <laughs> dom dom's frozen uh, All looks right, like so I, I know dom wanted to ask you about the banks so i want to sure. still thunder but he'll he may have to uh, log back on so the banks got killed today i guess that was a result of of the treasuries you know pricing pressure there and the yields coming down so what, what's your opinion on the banks, the big banks, the small banks, the community banks? Where, where do you guys fall in line?
3: Sure, that's a great question. I mean, if you take a look at it, I mean, how, do, how, do, how does a bank make money? A bank lends, takes money in short term, borrows short, lends long, right? So it's pretty logical to say that, so the key, the key business model driving points of bank earnings are what are interest spreads between what they're paying for their money and what they're lending it out for, and what are their credit losses? Now, the news on the credit loss, as you all know, corporate America is flush with cash. Consumers are flush with cash. Um, default rates for some of the consumer finance companies like Capital One and Discover and American Express are well at a near all-time lows at less than 2% of their of their outstanding debt are, are defaulting, which, believe it or not, is a really good number. Um, so what we've seen, though, is we've seen a very – it's and we're still get trying to put our arms around it there definitely is some 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 evidence that the rise of etfs and i think a lot of financial advisors and i don't think you guys are one of them but some uh, some don't even buy individual stocks anymore i mean a lot of people just say i want to buy a theme i want to buy a basket so i think we've seen the rise of a lot of etfs and some of the most popular ones are are the KBE and the KRE, which is the big bank ETF and the small bank ETF? There's been kind of a real a one, kind of a logic of you can almost you can almost gauge for certain when the 10-year Treasury is rising, um, bank stocks have been going up. When the 10-year Treasury goes down bank stocks have been going down. Why? Because the market's worried about, well, what's that gonna do to a company's net interest margin, which is really the key number that drives the profitability of a bank. Um, I think so that that one way trade argument though, is a little bit nearsighted there's more to it than that. It's what is demand for loans? What is demand for the underlying product? And I would say, Dom was just mentioning earlier that, you know, a stock like JP Morgan, which we think is one of the best run mega banks in the world, is now trading at a 52-week low. Now, um, there are some of these big banks. I just read City, for example, might have as much as 200 or $300 um, million tied to Russia that they may have to write off. But in the scheme of their asset base, that's not a lot. So I think when you take a look at what the hits are for some of these companies to their market cap versus where their stock prices are and what have you, I think financials look
2: extremely good right now. And and Greg, I apologize. I think it was my Internet that that left uh, planet Earth. Um, (laughs) But even the regional banks today, I think they were down six, eight percent. I mean, and you, that would assume that the Federal Reserve is not going to raise interest rates this year. Is that even conceivable? Why would a sector like that, even regional banks, just get pummeled today? Sure. Well, I don't have the full data yet, but I called
3: our trading desk and had them look into it. And there's a lot of evidence, Dom, that it was just wholesale selling of ETFs that, you know, if you're part of the basket, regardless of whether the individual companies' fundamentals deserve. I mean, let's face it, based on what we know right now, there isn't any company that should have gone down 5% in one day. Just the, the economy is good. There's no reason for that. I think it's just the, the pressure that we saw from ETFs and from financial related um, rifle shot type investment products caused kind of an, a broad-based broad selling in a lot of these stocks. And I, I, I'll make a prediction. The next time you see the 10-year uh, U.S. Treasury go back up again, you're probably going to see them all go right back up again. So that's because it's been such a one-way
2: trade. And Mike, if you don't mind, Greg, and we know that the machines vote. And in Wall Street, that means a lot of this stuff is done by algorithms, and they just sell, right? When it comes time to sell, you hit a certain target point. The machine is not making a judgment call. It's just ordered to sell, and it does. Yeah, I would say we're never we've never been a
3: fan of machine-based investing, but I think that's definitely what's going on out there right now.
1: So Greg, to that point, um, Dominic and I basically deal with, with a retail client base, right? I don't want to call them mom and pop, um, but they're not pension funds like you're dealing with. They're not endowments. They're hardworking people um, who, who we try to train them down the long view. You mentioned the beginning of the show, you're dealing with pension funds. What's their mindset? I mean, do, do, do you have to talk those guys off of a ledge? Are, are because you know they get paid by their performance right they, they have right. a higher power to answer to so what's those conversations like when you're dealing with all the volatility for going on now you know three months
3: sure and you know we do a lot of business with individuals too to be clear but the answer to the pension plan and guys a pension plan is really no different than one of your clients that's in their 50s that's saving for their ira that's saving in their retirement plan and it's basically your ira is your own personal retirement plan Mm -hmm. it's not that much different okay but what Mm -hmm. i would say what's different what what the advent of interest rates going super low has done is a a pension plan used a pension plan has long-term long-term asset liabilities they've got people in that plan that they're going to probably have to pay out for 30 or 40 years so a pension plan has to think very long term the way they used prior to interest rates being so low the common wisdom was a pension plan would be 60% stocks, 40% bonds or or assets that generate some sort of income. Um, I would tell you that in the last five to 10 years with interest rates being so low, I don't know a plan that's 60-40. In fact, I think the institutional world would tell you that the 60-40 plan is dead. And I think a lot of individuals have kind of gone that same direction is, I don't know many individuals that when interest rates were zero, We're real excited about investing in bonds. It was hard to earn a a return, especially when you're losing money and purchasing power. I think the key issue now, though, is that, you know, for example, there's some, you can buy an investment grade bond right now with with a 2%, uh, with a two year duration at almost 4%. So interest rates have gone up quite a bit. And I think what that's going to do is it's going to change some of the mentality of, of the pension world. And if they can get a more certain return with less risk as rates go up. I think it's logical to see that you're gonna see some of that money start to flow from riskier asset classes more towards fixed income. But then again, take a look at where inflation is. And with inflation at seven and a half, even with the 10 year treasury
2: at at 2%, um, there's still a big gap there. So we've got a long way to go. You know, Greg, I'm I'm glad you used the word income generating investments as opposed to just bonds. You guys have a terrific dividend portfolio and we've seen really high quality companies raise their dividends today, Home Depot comes to mind. Um, Talk to us about the power of dividends in a a portfolio. Oh, you know, historically, you know,
3: dividends, and when you take a look at the long-term rate of the market, Um, dividends are usually anywhere from 25 to 40% of the overall total return of the market. So I think most investors and we're us included is if you can get paid up front and not have to bet on capital appreciation, who wouldn't want that, (laughs) okay? So I think a a number that I I just was talking about this morning with part of my team that I think is another very, very solid underpinning of the market is it's not just the American consumer that's flush with cash, it's corporate America. Right now, I just read a great report from UBS that basically was noting that corporate America has three and a half trillion dollars on their, on their balance sheet right now. And as some of these risks start to dissipate from COVID and what have you, I think you're going to start to see what's corporate America going to do with that. And the thing that we're, this comes back to the ESG and the governance is what I think is important is, is pay attention to companies that can use that balance sheet as a way to benefit their shareholders. And how can they do that? Well, they can pay dividends and they can pay rising dividends. They can do M&A activity that helps grow their business long-term and adds long-term value to their company. They can buy back stock. And you know, the key thing is, is I think one thing that I find kind of interesting, I'm sure you guys will agree, is stocks are the only thing I can name that when the price goes down, the average person wants less of them. Um, You know, historically, when prices go down, you should want more of something. You know, I'm a curler and I was curling at my Milwaukee Curling Club last night. And a guy that's in his 50s was lamenting about how ugly the market's been, in his opinion. And I said to him, I said, how long do you have before you retire? And he goes, well, I'm not going to retire for another 15 years. And my point to him, as I said, you should actually like, you should actually look at this current correction as an opportunity that you're buying more shares cheaper so long term, this is actually a good thing for you as long as stocks go up over the long term. So, um, you know, so, so when I look at you know corporate America, that now they're going to be able to buy back stock at lower prices and have an even bigger bang for their buck than they had last summer. So, there's a lot of really powerful things that are going on that I don't think the media really talks enough about.
1: You know, w- w- there there are two things I would say to a client, and and one of them is. Well, if you love the stock at, at, at 50, you're going to adore it at, at, at 25, right? You're going to want to buy more of it at 25. And you're right. There's always this disconnect. And I always give them the analogy. Well, if your favorite coffee is on sale, you know, you know, you could get two for the price of one. Are you going to say, well, they put the crappy coffee in there and you're not going to buy two for one. But but you're right. You know, these stocks right now are on sale and I will give our clients credit in March of 2020 when all these stocks really were super on sale we were getting calls greg you know i want sure. to buy a few stocks and i want to step in so i think clients are beginning to figure that out
3: as well you know, I, I guess i there was one point i should have made guys that i didn't is i'm a inflation is on everybody's mind and it should be because i think you know the the, the sixty four thousand dollar question is how will how much will inflation you know that the fed has stopped using the word transitory for which is i think is a good thing but you know how long will it take before we get back to normalcy um you know if you buy a bond with a fixed rate of return you know you're going to get that return plus your money but we know that that purchasing power of that money future is going to go down because of inflation what i love about dividend paying stocks is Take a company like PepsiCo, for example. I mean, they pay a a good dividend, but that dividend tends to, PepsiCo's earnings go up every single year. So that dividend rises with that. And that gives you some protection and purchasing power where it generates more income than it did each annual year that helps protect that increase in inflation. And I think that's where I'm a big fan of dividend paying stocks over some income generating assets that just, just have a static rate of return.
2: And now we're starting to run out of time, Greg. So, one last one for me. You know, we've gone through these crises, these uh, war around the world, unfortunately, many times before. And inevitably, things do calm down. And inevitably, historically, the markets have come back. What's a, a reasonable timeline that we've seen historically anyway? Well, I've, I've got a good table that I was just referencing. You
3: know, historically, um, the average market reaction to a geopolitical conflict like we're going through right now is in the 6 to 10% range. So the, the, the question mark, and I think in a lot of people's minds is, well, how much of what we've been through so far this year is related to Russia and Ukraine? How much is related to fears over, over uh, what the Fed is going to do? It's a little bit of both. And I don't think anybody has a rifle shot, clear answer as to what percentage is. But I think it's reasonable to think that Unless we get the very worst-case scenario where Russia fights back and uses energy as a weapon, uses industrial metals as a weapon um, to fight back against the sanctions, which could set, certainly have, you know, far-reaching geopolitical consen- um, impacts. As long as that doesn't happen, I would guess that sometime by this summer, the markets will get past what we're dealing with right now, get back to good old-fashioned growth and earnings and cash flow and revenues. And then juxtapose that back to the Fed. But as you guys have said a couple of times on this call, or privately with clients that I've, I've heard you talk to, is, you know, interest rates go up because the economy is good. And the economy is still on extremely good footing. And I think that's the reason that um, we all, you know, we'll, it's never fun to go through these type of corrections, but we get through them. Um, the average market, the market correction, you know, we've been in a couple of years where last year, I think we didn't experience a correction more than 5%. Historically, on an annual basis, the S&P goes down at 14% in a, in a period of time for the year. Um, this year is no different um, with as long as we have the trajectory of earnings, revenues and cash flow, like I've talked about before, um, we'll get through this. And I think in a year or two, we'll look back on it and go much ado about nothing, but it does, definitely doesn't feel like nothing right now.
1: That's reassuring, Greg. And I can't Dominic and I can't thank you enough for your time. But unfortunately, we are out of it this evening.
2: Very good. Appreciate the time, guys. And have a great day. Greg, Thank uh, thank you again. And thanks for the voice of reason. You bet.
3: We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back. With best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to hear from investors and get insight on different asset classes? Join host Troy Eckert for the program, Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Troy works with high net worth investors and is ready to bring you the secrets he's learned in his 35 years of alternative investment experience, along with his guest experts. If you want value, you'll need to listen in live every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's one 866 You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now back to the Labenthal report.
1: All right. I'm Michael Hartzman back with Dominic Tavella. You know, Dominic, Greg said something at the end of his segment, which I wish he would have give us a little more time to explore. It was a big if we said about Putin, you know, if Putin doesn't react and, and, and start monkeying around with metals and oil, which are two primary resources um, for Russia, and you know what, Dom? That could be the next leg down because I think Putin can react. So I think he's frustrated with the slowness that this is going on, and with the reaction, the world—he's a world pariah right now. So I think him doing anything, God forbid, short of a nuclear weapon, is still on the table.
2: Uh, look, uh, Mike, and uh, you know, a lot of times we're, we are limited with time and our guests' time. But the reality is we can look at past history and say this is what happened. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not saying this time is different, but this time could be different, because we are dealing with an individual that has an insane amount of control, and his behavior has not been very rational, right. So. We're assuming at some point the behavior does become rational and maybe they call a ceasefire or maybe they negotiate some kind of uh, peaceful end to this, but we don't know what's going to happen, right? So our side is to, to be cautious, as, as Greg brought up, to have some dry powder, to have some resources available and protect our clients' portfolios, but uh, this could go in any direction. And so we have to keep our eyes open.
1: There's no, there, there's no question. Look, and, and and I agree with him completely. And I agree with basically everything he said, especially about taking the long view. But I do feel like the market has been searching for a bottom. And, 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 you know, Putin's irrationality might just create, you know, that next leg down, which might be that last leg down. And there we could start rebuilding.
2: Look, uh, uh, Greg brought it up. Uh, J.P. Morgan has been incredibly negative uh, all year, coming into the end of last year. um, Our favorite, Dr. Siegel, who's been our guest uh, multiple times on our show, uh, the perma bull has actually gotten a little bearish. Um, Look, it's not unreasonable that we get one more leg down, um, but, but our job is to calm our clients down and walk them and help them through this um, and hopefully in the end but i do think it, it does happen that uh, markets do recover in a reasonable period of time and hopefully we look back on it as some unnecessary uh, stress but we get through it yeah well you know of course of course they're going to recover because as as we said
1: people are still spending money people are still eating out people you know still want to go on vacation and, and 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 there's this enormous demand to get back to their lives and that's what's frustrating now is like they've been blocked again by this
2: hesitancy. Uh, Mike, you brought it up, and I know maybe you were trying to be uh, a little funny, but uh, try to get a reservation at a restaurant. Just try, right? It's, an, it's near impossible. Certainly, right now, down here in Florida, and I don't think New York is, is much different. Um, consumers are in a very financially healthy place, and they have been cooped up for two years. They want to go out and spend money. If allowed, they want to go spend it. And that means the economy and corporations are also in a very healthy place.
1: Yeah. yeah, Well, yes. And, And we, we talk about that all the time. And again, there's that context. The reason we're so, so concerned about rising interest rates, Dominic, is because the economy is healthy. If the economy was not healthy, we would have declining interest rates. So, We have to accept that we're going to have rising interest rates from time to time if we want the economy to stay healthy.
2: Um, I think you you put a bow on it, Mike. So um, uh, we will have more guests in the future who hopefully will bring us more insight, but grateful that Greg could join us tonight and, and bring us a little bit of a calming voice and common sense logic to what we can expect going forward.
1: So I put a bow on it. Are you implying I got the last word tonight? I'm going to leave it up to you, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> well, on that note, I'm going to, I'm going to take the wind and we will be back with our show next week. Good night, all. Have a good night, everybody.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Leventhal Report. Dominic Tavella, and Michael Hartzman will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.